I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello, and welcome to For Your Ears Only. This is the official James Bond podcast as part of the Optimism Vaccine Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jake Tropila, joined as always by my co-host, Jack Eason. Jack, how are you doing this afternoon? Yeah, feeling, feeling pretty good, Jake. Awake, and what more can you ask for? Alive and awake, and that's all we could really ask for these days. That's it. That's yeah. where we're hitting. Yeah. Well, we have a very special episode, and uh, to help commemorate this special episode, we've invited on a special guest to the podcast. I'm proud to introduce the editor-in-chief of FilmInquiry.com. Please welcome everybody, Christy Strauss. Christy, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Very excited to be here and to talk about Bond. Thank you for inviting me. Well, yeah, thank you for joining. We're more than happy to have you. This This is an exciting time for the podcast. We're uh, just got you in as a guest under the wire, as they say. Got this episode left, and then there's Spectre, and then No Time to Die comes out in November. And who knows if that'll even be released in theaters in November. But uh, yeah, we shall see. November with November with quotes. Yeah, November? (laughs) Question mark? Question mark. Yeah. So um, before we get into the film, uh, Christy, do you want to share maybe some of your background uh, or history with James Bond or this film? Uh, were you a fan growing up as a kid or what did it tell us your Bond story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, James Bond, it makes me think of my father because it was something that we shared from a young age. He was a huge James Bond fan. So he introduced me to the entire collection um, something that I watched a lot as a kid. I, I think I still have most of the VHS tapes hidden somewhere, uh, you know, back in the day of VHS. And, um, yeah, I, it was a lot of fun. I, I always, uh, loved it. I, Sean Connery was my favorite, but I do love, um, some of Timothy Dalton's, uh, some of those ones stood out to me the most. Good choice. Uh, yes. Uh, so yeah, like, um, I've, it was just, it's part of my childhood. You know, it's something that's uh, always there. And I appreciate any every new one that comes out, especially with, you know, I love Daniel Craig as well. So I definitely have a history, a good one. Well, excellent. Good to hear. You're in, a, you're in good company. Um, do you have a f- film that you consider to be your favorite? You know, it's tough. I always loved From Russia With Love. Um, and, but in The Living Daylights, uh, which... Is you know the Timothy obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I have one in particular, but for different reasons at different times, I think. And I love, you know, I actually love Skyfall um, a lot. Uh, so it's a good one to be talking about as far as like newer ones. And I, I love the uh, Casino Royale. Yeah, those the are all second Casino Royale. Of, of course, <laughs> I think I think everybody knows when you say Casino Royale, they know exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, at least I hope so. I don't know if that's true for you, Jack. I know you're quite fond there's a, of there's uh, a, a David Niven fan out here fuming somewhere. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna get one email because of that. Um, but uh, 
Great. Yeah. Well, that's that's all awesome to hear. And we're so happy to have you on board. And thank you for uh, sharing your history. Um, and yeah, so I mean, we got a pretty this is a this is episode 0025. This is a billion dollar movie we're going to talk about. This is Skyfall. Um, I mean, let's get right into it, shall we? We uh, open with an amazing, I think, pre-title sequence set in the Grand Bazaar. Um, there's a hard drive uh, that has been taken. It's got the names and identities of MI6 agents out in the field. And Bond is on the hunt for this assassin named Patrice to get it back before the names get out. Um, a lot of things to love here. Uh, first of all, I love the opening shot um, of Bond stepping into the light because uh, his figure starts out of focus and he approaches the camera. Uh, and this film does not start with a traditional gun barrel, but it, I'd say it has more of a figurative one. Um, Jack, what are your thoughts on this opening opening bit? Uh, definitely solid. De definitely solid start. Um, I mean, I think my my main takeaway from this sequence is that it iterates Bond as part of a team. It, it feels like a Mission mm. Impossible kind of a setup because we have Eve uh, Naomi Harris playing another agent who's accompanying Bond and. Bond wanders in on another deal. The the hard drive has been stolen and a guy's been left shot and Bond has to make a decision to either try to patch this guy up or follow his orders to mm -hmm. trace the, the hard drive, which again highlights the fact that the double O agents are disposable and so on, which is something that's kind of brought more to the fore in, in the Craig era. The idea that, you know, these guys are kind of, there's a certain pathology to them. They have to understand that they're interchangeable and kind of like can be there's a greater good they serve which means that sometimes they're not that important and so on which can lead to feelings of self-loathing and so on which i think this film dives somewhat into um so yeah it's it's a good opening sequence solid action sequence certainly but yeah i think it frames kind of an interesting setup of bond as being part of a unit which is pretty unusual within the bond franchise um and of course, ironically, then he gets shot by his own person. So they quickly uh, move back into Bond being, you know, kind of, he works best on his own, I guess. He's uh works best as a lone wolf. But yeah, um, and it's a long, scene. it's like 16 minutes long nearly. I think this pre-credit sequence just goes with the film being, I mean, it's, this is a two and a half hour long movie. This is long. Yeah. Much by not many of the Bond films run this long. So, yeah. Yeah. This this one definitely is on the longer side, but um, yeah, great points about just the expendability of MI six agents. I mean, they're the they're the best in their field, but uh, M seems to throw them out with reckless abandon. Um, Christy, what are your thoughts on the uh, the pre title sequence? Yeah, I think it's a, a great sequence. There's a lot of terrific action, and and I do agree as well about the uh, expendability of it. And I think that's something that over the course of the film is something that's shown quite a bit, especially with as we get into like the villain and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, no, I think it's I think it's great. And even if he does end up getting shot <laughs> by uh Money Penny, it's uh it's a terrific sequence. Yeah, spoiler alert, we actually don't know at the time that that is uh, Money Penny. Um, this is a very, it's a very interesting dynamic because um, most of the Bond staff, uh, they're all relegated to an office, and we only see Sorry. them for. No, 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 it's fine. We're uh, if you're if you're not a fan of this movie and you're listening to this, I mean, we're happy to have you. But also, what are you doing here? Um, but uh, doesn't yeah. change that much. 
reckon yeah. people probably watch the movie first. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, there. Yeah, I don't think anybody listens to a Bond podcast if they're not a little bit familiar with Bond. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a uh, we get a whole new a whole new cast in this movie to set up future mm. installments. Um, but uh, yeah, so. As Jack said, uh, Bond's working in the field. He's got a companion in Eve. Uh, Emma is talking to them uh, via... She's remote in London, um, talking to them via headset. Uh, they're basically going through the, uh, the bazaar. There's a motorcycle chase on the flat rooftops. Um, then that turns into a uh, fight on top of a train. A um, couple things I love about this. One, I love that instead of just jumping off of the bridge, uh, Bond decides to ram his motorcycle into the side of the bridge so it could catapult him off. Uh, and then two, I love when he gets into the caterpillar and makes a makeshift bridge by collapsing the other train compartments that the assassin is on. He jumps into it and casually adjusts his cufflink. Um, just that little detail that like that. I love it so much. This is He's so this cool. Is a, yeah, exactly. Um, he's, he's cool, but he gets shot here, which is also unusual. Um, he yeah. actually takes a bullet, which yeah. action stars and trains have difficulty, because of course everyone would note Steven Seagal also gets shot in uh, Under Siege 2 on a train. So trains are a big no-no for the action stars. Luckily, Steven Seagal just decides he isn't actually shot and continues for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. he ignores it. Whereas Bond, it's, you know, it, it weakens him, slows him down. It's kind of it's it's an interesting thing because I mean Bond really it's uh, I guess differentiates era is that Craig can get shot like Roger Moore never would have been shot no one could shoot Roger Moore that yeah. would look ridiculous uh, but Daniel Craig takes a bullet he's slowed down he's reckless he's a little bit you know crazy and I, I guess it kind of goes back to something I feel is being built in like Casino Royale as well which is that the henchmen are becoming more competent or his adversaries are more competent in the mm -hmm. field. So it actually mm -hmm. goes back to like uh, From Russia With Love, Red Grant was like the competent henchman. Um, you know, a highly trained guy, similar to Bond. This this film, again, I, I guess it kind of ups it ante again, that like he's not dealing with, you know, just, they're not disposable bad guys that he can just like push off cliffs or whatever, doing like Roger Mortis where he gives a slight neck adjustment that they keel over dead. And, yeah. you know, they, they actually <laughs> fight back. So yeah, it's it's it builds that kind of gritty dynamic, which yeah, I'm I'm kind of like, it's good. It's kind of a return to we talk about quantum of solace feeling a little bit off the rails. Mm -hmm. Ironically, this literally gets back on rails, and uh, yeah, good welcome. I think um I think a lot of the the success to this film is uh I think that's probably in part due to the the kind of tepid reaction to quantum of solace back in the day. Um, you know, people were definitely excited to see it after Casino Royale, and then it came out, and everyone was kind of just, just sort of mixed. Oh, yeah, okay, all right, that was a that was a thing. Bond is back, I guess. And then we get a long break from Bond. We he took took off four years between this and um, and Quantum and Solace and Skyfall. So I think uh, you know, and this film certainly has a lot of work put into it. Um, we should mention that Roger Deakins is the cinematographer. Uh, this film looks amazing. Uh, it's the first Bond film shot digitally, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's also, we should mention, it's directed by Sam Mendes, um, who put a lot of uh, time into it. So it's very much a, a polished, great Bond film coming off of the heels of Quantum of Solace. I think this is what people were looking for, and I think that's a lot of what is owed to its uh, success. Um, yeah, I agree. Quantum of Solace was uh, disappointing. Yeah, 
yeah there's you can kind of see things in it that i would like if expanded mm-hmm. out but it's it's just too the unfortunate reality is it's just too much of a mess to to work um but uh yeah bond is shot he's sh- shot first by uh the assassin patrice uh who's using this bizarre double drum mag handgun that shoots like 100 rounds a minute um and then he's then shot by money penny on the orders of m to take the shot even though it's not clean uh bond goes falling off the side of a bridge um and then uh as he's carried away in the waters we hear this This is a uh, this is Skyfall by Adele, of course. Um, I'm just gonna Great song. You know, I'm just yeah I'm just gonna go right out and say it. I love this track. I think it it's high in my top ten of Bond uh, Bond songs. Um, Jack, what are your thoughts on Skyfall, the song? What do we, we never we never seem to agree on these things. I'm not a fan. <laughs> um, I, I feel agree. Adele, of course, is like yeah, Adele was born to sing a Bond tune. It's like it's a uh, no brainer they bring her on board it actually, it actually kind of reminded me it's kind of a shame that amy winehouse never got a crack at one it kind of mm-hmm. occurred to me while i was listening to this it would be another less like iconic voice to put to it um i think i guess my, my complaint about this this song and it's not like it's like oh god it's terrible i was actually i'm more bothered i'm more bothered by the opening credit sequence which i think is maybe my least favorite bond credit sequence it's a really kind of pictorially literal kind of a sequence of graveyards and like it's i I don't know it's it's very specific in the stuff it includes it feels a little bit you know kind of um yeah a a little too straightforward it should be a little dreamier more obtuse abstract maybe in my preferences but getting back to the song i guess my feeling is that it's just she's it just felt like she kept just saying skyfall over and over again i was just like just 
pull it back a little bit. I, I know it's called Skyfall, but um, yeah, I mean, when I say I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of this. I'd certainly, uh, there, there have been worse. Um, I still, I'm probably on, on the, the upswing that I think, honestly, Quantum Solace might have the best Bond theme tune that I've heard of recent since, like, the 80s when I was, like, just music I heard growing up, so I can't even judge it uh, objectively, if I could even do that to begin with, you know? It's like, hey, Duran Duran, that's great. So this, like, um, the rest of them just, uh, I don't know, they're, they're, it's it's not, not really doing it for me, but at the same time, it is also, I guess, if I had to, like, lean into the positive, it sure as hell is a Bond theme tune. Like, no one's going to mistake what's happening. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, yeah, you know, credit where it's due. It 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 works. It's big. It's booming. It it does. I guess it does speak to a return to form. Um, sadly, Quantum of Solace. Honestly, I think Team Two might have been a high point um, within the whole film, which maybe is not the best way to work that out. So that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's crazy yeah. to me somehow. But um, <laughs> whatever, that's, man. You know, we gotta. Re- I mean, it's not so much that I'm listening. To, I just think that it brought an energy into that movie, which the movie then squandered. But, you know, mm-hmm. it was different. It Like, it struck my ear. It was like, this feels a little different. This little, you know. And the pre-credit sequence, we've discussed Quantum of Solace, but the pre-credit sequence is really strong in Quantum of Solace. And then it yeah. cuts into that. Yeah, and it's sure. like, we're doing something new. This feels new. And then the rest of the film isn't new at all. It's it's really much the same stuff, but on a writer's strike, which is a terrible uh, setup for things to be. So yeah. then this one feels, I guess, you know, you go back safer. You go back more traditional. And... Um, and, it, and it's interesting, this film is weirdly traditional in that it's almost like a reboot of a reboot or a reboot within a reboot. That, like, Casino Royale was, like, Bond coming back as a new agent. They kind of, like, went back to his front. And then somehow within, like, two films, he's over the hill. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, they're, but they're bringing in, like, Q and they're bringing in Money Penny and they're rebuilding the franchise. But Bond is over the hill. It's kind of a, yeah, it's strange, but I mean that will I guess come more to the fore as we as we talk through this. But um, yeah, yeah, it's opening credits. No denying it from me. I'm I'm on board. Yeah, Christy, do you have any uh, extended thoughts on uh, Skyfall, the the song, or the just the visuals in the opening credit sequence? Yeah, so for the song, I I'm definitely a fan. It's actually one of my favorites. But what's interesting is when I first heard it when I went to the theater to see the the movie, I hadn't heard the song prior mm-hmm. and I wasn't crazy about it. And I, I, I kind of get like, it sounds like she just keeps saying Skyfall. But, um, after watching the movie and then watching it again, for some reason, I gained a lot more appreciation for it. I think totally it just matches the, the film really well. Yeah. And of course, I mean, Adele was definitely someone that should always have sung a, uh, a Bond song and a- Amy Winehouse would have been amazing as well. Um, so yeah, no, I, I'm a fan of it. Uh, so I got to go with Jake on that. Um, I, I will say I've listened to the song exactly once. <laughs> so well, now it's I, stuck I, in my head. Just, so thank you. Very much. Just by seeing the film, you you haven't heard it outside of that. <laughs> no, no, I am. I live in a quasi uh, weird fugue state where I am not aware of any Adele song. No, there was one that the Saturday Night Live I saw. They did spoof of a Hello song. I don't oh, right. know any Adele songs. I am. I somehow. Uh, yeah. No don't know anything about popular music whatsoever i am an old man somehow who just escaped all these things so no it, it, this was my first time ever hearing skyfall was literally watching this film uh so yeah so yeah. so honestly factor that into my opinions on it because i have heard it exactly once and just whatever was included in the film so mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not an Adele fan by any stretch of the imagination. Um, like I know Hello and I know Rolling in the Deep, but uh, I I love this song. Um, she really, it is very classy. It's very classical. It's it's like the traditional Soulful. Bond theme exactly. I think uh, I think also what works about this film is that um, this feels like a like like the ultimate Bond fan film. Um, I mean that in the highest possible praise because uh, Sam Mendes is clearly, clearly enamored with the franchise. So he's sure to hit a lot of key points that'll also tickle fans. And we'll get into some of those throughout, but I think this is like, as you know, this is like the ultimate vision of a, of a fan film of like a classic Connery era Bond um, that could have been made. And I think also we should note this film, it came out in 2012. This was on the 50th anniversary of uh, the James Bond film franchise. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot going for it. But um, yeah, I'm a fan of Skyfall. I like the opening uh, titles, visuals. I think the, the watery, <laughs> excuse me, the watery grave stuff is cool. Um, yeah. Just some quick, uh, quick little points here about uh, the track. Uh, this opened, it was, the, it peaked at number two on the UK billboards number eight on the U.S. billboards, and it also uh, won the, f it's the first Bond song to win an Oscar. Uh, it won, and it also the, uh, won an Oscar for sound editing, which, incredibly enough, it tied with another film that year, Zero Dark Thirty. Both won Oscars in that category. But, um, yeah, it's widely considered one of the best Bond songs. Well, and well, uh, I'm sorry? Say, no, no one knows what sound editing is anyway. So, you know, we do like this three specific <laughs> group of people do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just is I can't remember is sound editing just for the loudest film. I don't remember which one the sound mixing. I don't that might be mixing which, you're thinking of which one goes sound mixing might be for the loudest movie. Sound editing is for the one with the best, like the, the most distinct sound effects. Yeah, that's but, exactly um, you know, right. I can. Yeah. Academy. Send me send me a membership card. I can work with this. Um, you know, I can already tell when the most editing has occurred, which is what that one's for. So, right. Yeah. yeah right on. Go. Well, yeah. Moving along to the film. Remember that the film we were discussing. Um, yeah. So <laughs> James Bond dies. Bond's and dead. He's over. He's the movie's over. Um, and then we have just this kind of bizarre two hour postmortem. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Of course. Um, Bond has turned himself onto into a just a helpless drunk on this remote island somewhere. Uh, the list is out. Um, members of MI6 are being targeted because their identities are being posted online and they're being killed. Um, and uh, M is basically in deep with uh, the board, I guess you could say. Um, I, I do want to, I do want to intercut here, Jake, just to know sure. that the bond is bond is on the rocks. Alcoholism but honestly, the only way you know he was an alcoholic is because they say it later on. Because mm -hmm. basically, Bond on like at his lowest ebb is basically hanging out on a paradise beach with a beautiful woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's like and just drinking at a bar. That's kind of like that's Bond on the rocks, and it just feels a little bit like is it is it so bad? I mean, he's like he takes a vacation and then he comes back again. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if they developed that fully. They kind of mentioned later on, it's like, you know, you're an alcoholic. And it's like, oh, is he? Oh, okay, I guess so. I mean, I, I like a drink when I'm on the beach too. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> also also worth noting that for American viewers, this is Wolf Blitzer's uh, James Bond uh, debut shows up on the, on the TV. And I do feel like it's worth noting that Wolf Blitzer's name is dumber than several Bond girls in history. I think that's a beautiful thing. 
So it's yeah. funny. He's now the go-to guy if you need a famous news person to break uh, global um, trauma or any sort of event because he also pops up in Mission Impossible Fallout um, for that exact purpose, just to be just to be on a TV hard, and like, give information. Yeah, how hard does his agent lobby for it? Like, did, is this something you pursue to be like the recognizable anchor person who shows up in movies? Like, is that something you've got to like suck up for, or do they seek you out? I mean, his agent probably just says, guys, his name's Wolf Blitzer. Who are you, who are you kidding <laughs> not letting him in your movie? It's true. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so Bond, uh, he makes his way back to uh, England after, yeah, as you said, months or however long he's been out. He's drinking. He's playing bar games with the locals, drinking shots of tequila with uh, scorpions on his wrist. Um, that and that also surprised me. Like, I like drinking, but I'm just who games it up? Like, I, <laughs> I just don't well, get it's these. Bond. Exactly. I, I guess like a bunch <laughs> of people. Like, if I were in that bar, I would be sitting far away, just like God. I hate the people who come to this bar. <laughs> so go get but, stung but you, by a scorpion. Do it out on the beach. But you could also say that because of you know he's taking advantage of the fact that everyone thinks he's dead, and he maybe is being more reckless than usual. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. The whole sequence could be trying to like portray that like yeah it's it's, it's true actually trying to read that sequence because again it does it does i guess play back into him being on a low ebb and that he's reckless and he's suicidal perhaps an alcoholic but then it's also like with the legacy of bond when i see him doing it, it's like well i know he's not gonna get stung by a scorpion he's not gonna die so it, it kind of like inadvertently almost makes it seem a little cool um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like weighing up those elements. It's kind of a within the very specific dictum of James Bond, I guess, like those kind of crazy drinking games become kind of like, well, I guess that just seems like something Bond would do because he's mostly invincible. But I guess he did get shot earlier. So they're kind of like bringing that vulnerability. Um, yeah, I hadn't really considered that. Actually, I'd kind of the, yeah, the Scorpion game would be an indicator of a kind of a suicidal recklessness. Yeah, yeah just like honestly. that wouldn't have been a normal. Like normally, he may have just played quarters or something. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> nice. I bet Bond would be really good at quarters, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Wouldn't they call it something else in England, like pence or something? I don't know. Um, anyways. Trumpets. anyways um yeah so Bond makes his way back. Uh, he meets with M. She's surprised to see him alive. But uh, I guess welcomes him back anyway. He's uh, brought into MI6 um, where they've... uh, Oh, we should mention MI6 has uh, since been blown up um, by an unknown adversary, uh, forcing them to move to an underground station where they can operate and be safe for the time being. Um, Bond is given a series of tests. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I say I I know... um... I know they made this movie prior to us recording the Quantum of Solace podcast, so we probably didn't have a direct effect as much as I'd like to believe we did. But in Quantum of Solace, we were complaining about, like, MI6 just looking like a generic open-plan office, like all Mm -hmm. chrome and, like, shitty, you know, like, Silicon Valley-looking thing. So I feel like this was kind of a nice fix that that place got blown up and they had to move into, like, a World War II bunker. I was like, yeah, yeah, that seems a little better. I feel like you get more work done there. Like, the people wouldn't be hopping around trying to tell you about what they got up to on Wednesday or whatever. Like yeah. Some crazy thing their kid did. So, you and know, because I feel like that probably still happens in MI6. And it's like, Jesus, Gary, we don't care. 
and uh, and a good a good portion of their uh, coworkers were probably killed, so they probably had to work double time to catch up on what's missing. Oh, you know uh, what? Yeah, but uh, yeah. Anyways, we meet a new character, Gareth Mallory, played uh, by the great Ray Fiennes. Uh, he's overseeing uh, M's transition out of office uh, due to the list getting out. She's basically being forced to retire. Um, he's the head of the Intelligence and Security Committee, uh, but he might have another role uh, later on in the film. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, Bond is uh, given a series of exams. Um, his medical—he's given a medical evaluation. He's put on a, the range uh, to test his um, his sharpshooting, or just his his just his gun firing. I guess he's not really sharpshooting. Uh, he's got piss poor aim. Um, then we get into this great sequence uh where he does this word association with a like a psychoanalysis um i really like this um scene uh because i think craig's acting is brilliant just the way that he <laughs> verbally communicates that how and how he responds that he does not want to be there so like every response he just gives it's just kind of like he's got this sardonic uh undertone to it um but then he, he like balks at the word Skyfall and leaves. What are you guys' thoughts on the the word association scene? Um, yeah, I love it. It's, it's exactly the same that you said um, because Craig is so good in that part. And and yeah, he has this just kind of level of um, you know not care, not caring, um, yeah. definitely sardonic and. It's interesting, too, because when you get to the Skyfall, it's like, ooh, what is that? You know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the, the one thing that kind of gets a reaction from him. Yeah. But Craig's so good at being kind of like, you know, cool, don't give a shit, untouchable. And after coming back from this whole um, depressive getaway, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's affected him even more. Yeah, Absolutely. Jack, any thoughts on on Craig's return to the service or the word association or et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, yeah, it's it's I guess as again highlights it. Casino Royale, I believe, was the first to bring a Bond being an orphan, which is leaned into heavily, and it's not confirmed in that film. That's that another great kind of psychoanalysis scene in that uh, scene between Craig and Eva Mendes, or not Eva Mendes. Uh, what's her name? It's Eva, Eva Green. Vesper Eva Lynn. Green. Other oh, Eva. See, I'm just. <laughs> wrong one they should put Eva Mendes in one of these things that'd be a great plan later on but um yeah their discussion where they're basically trying to feel each other out and basically play mind mm-hmm. games and uh, one of the things they tack on to is that Bond might be an orphan and he kind of hides it you know or he, he, he tries not to react but it's kind of the seed is sown and this film confirms it so he's someone who's probably looking for approval looking for some kind of structure you know you could read all kinds of things into that yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's it's interesting that Skyfall is a similar idea that we come to learn that's his old home or wherever it is, the orphanage he was raised in um, or the adopted home he was raised in, I guess. Um, so that, that there's there's some kind of a, a humanity to bond underneath it all. There's a vulnerability there. Um, mm-hmm. I think this whole sequence is also kind of interesting, the, the testing and stuff and that he does very poorly and getting slightly ahead and clears him says he passes the test and then we learn a little bit down the line that actually she lied uh he didn't pass mm-hmm. any of the tests which seemed no. obvious to us watching them he's doing very very badly um but it does it it does bring up that kind of interesting relationship between bond and m that bond 
is an agent who relies more on some kind of a extra kind of like outside of his training. He has an instinct and an ability to function, which even if he doesn't pass the test, she believes that will carry him through. Which is, you know, kind of, it's it's an interesting setup to it, because we, we get the feeling, it's not confirmed, but it does come as a little bit of surprise when M says, you passed barely. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, barely? It's like, that didn't look like what was going to happen. And then later, we are confirmed that indeed she actually has basically, uh, through her own prerogative, sent an H to his unfit for duty <laughs> out into serious danger. Um, and yeah, But it's, it's an interesting one, because I mean, this film, of course, becomes really about that relationship between M and Bond, that kind of strange mother-daughter or mother-son relationship, but also kind of, um, I, I don't know, like almost like a submissive dominant relationship. I don't, there's like this strange kind of needling between them. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 a good scene. It's a strange kind of a setup or, or kind of, a, I guess, an effective setup for what will what will occur down the line. And, and I will say, uh, one of the things that struck me, one of the things I do really like about this film is this feels like really the first film you know, you hire Judy Dench, you know, use her. And so few things use Judy Dench. Like oh, Judy yeah. Dench has become a little bit like Meryl Streep, that she's become kind of like the she's so good she doesn't even need a part. Um, you know, <laughs> which is frustrating because they're great actresses if you would give them a part. And this is the the Bond film that really gives Judy Dench something to do. And like she's obviously she's very solid in the previous films, but she's never there for a long. And this one really builds something more. So yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that. That's definitely definitely a major recommendation here. Yeah, this is um yeah, this is definitely Judy Dench's finest hour is in this film. Um it is. there's not a uh, there's not a there's there's Severin who we meet later on, played by Bernice Marlowe, but there's not really a classic Bond girl in this film. It is it's sort of just handed to M. Uh she's the Bond woman. Um and she's the one who's I mean, at the end of, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. She's the only, she's the only like consistent um, presence in Bond's life, and I think all part of him coming back is just this this sense of yearning of of wanting to be accepted by someone, and how he kind of feels like he's he's not wanted, and you know, like we we get into the thing about him being an orphan, and this is this is Bond's quest for um, I don't know some sort of self affirmation. Um, he wants he wants to be accepted by someone who will have him shot. <laughs> I mean, Which, that's that's true. Look, love. I'm no, <laughs> I'm no lifestyle, I'm no lifestyle guru, but this is it's gonna cause trouble down the line, guys. It's not yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I do want to say, like M's character in this movie, like her story, is one of the reasons why I love Skyfall so much. Um, their relationship and the fact that it does revolve around her and also the connection, obviously, to the villain, which we haven't got to yet, um, is such a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. And his vulnerability is also something that's... Um, I just think this makes this movie kind of different from, from the last two. Yeah. Even though there's shades of that, obviously, in uh, Casino Royale. But, yeah, it's what what makes this most interesting, I think. I love that she's the uh, the Bond lady. Yeah. For sure, seven films in seventeen years. She's been a part of the franchise. It's uh, it's incredible. Yeah. That's off to Dame D- Judy Dench. Um, we uh, we meet a new Q. Um, first time we've had Q in. This is we've gone Casino Royale and Quantum were Qless. Now we have Ben Wishaw playing a young, wet behind the ears puppy dog Q. Um, he's great. He's able to kind of verbally spar with Bond. It's a fun little sequence. Um, 
mm-hmm. you know, it kind of kind of rejects any notion that they're going to have any sort of elaborate gadgets from the past films, like um, like the exploding pen. I do like that they kind of nod to that, but uh, this is this is like saying, hey, this is a, this is we're more grounded in reality here, so you know, we're not yeah, going to have that much fun. But there's an interesting there's an interesting energy to it because it is kind of like it's kind of an acknowledgement they have like a very young like this you know, like he looks like he's just out of college at best Q mm-hmm. and there's kind of this feeling that it's like look the gadgetry and stuff we kind of acknowledge we don't really know what's high tech gadgetry anymore like no one could track it like because technology has gone in a direction that isn't like the 60s Bond movies where you have an exploding pen and a shoe you can make a phone call through or whatever like that's nonsense now. Technology has gone in these directions of like tiny, strange kind of oscillations of reality and how you can change things and screw things up and and they kind of like acknowledge that honestly, they just give them a gun and a, a radio receiver. <laughs> it's kind of like that's what you're getting, and then everything else is just kind of like computer hacking stuff that we're not going to get much into because it's kind of like it'll work with the film. And it's kind of like that, you know, I appreciate that. They're not, they don't spend a lot of time. There, there is a kind of a hacking sequence later on, but they don't spend a lot of time trying to explain computer hacking, which is something some movies do. And they inevitably sound stupid as hell when they do. Yeah. So I think they, they actually balance this really well in having like, look, it's a young man's game technology now. Here's the young man. We're not going to talk about it anymore. We'll just keep moving. Good, good choice. I think smart. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Bond uh, then rips out some of the shard. He digs some of the shards out of his chest from the the assassin bullets in the pre-title sequence, and he tracks him down. His name is Patrice. Uh, he goes to Shanghai where he's on another assignment, and um, we get uh, we get what is probably like uh, as I mentioned earlier. This is kind of like a Bond fan film in many ways. We get like the best director showcase of that with this. Um, blue neon fight sequence um this set piece is amazing i think uh it's all just silent and eerie and it has a nice glow to it um and then there's just that great one take fight of the camera dollying into the edge of the broken window of these two professionals trying to kill each other uh christy what are your thoughts on the the shanghai sequence yeah i think you kind of um highlighted it well i mean it's it's definitely a standout there's a lot of you know terrific sequences in this movie as far as fight but um mm-hmm. you know i i do love the, the like you said the kind of eeriness of it and also like the glow and um it's it's well you know, choreographed it's definitely a standout sequence for sure jack do you have any uh, i do wonder what? oh go ahead yeah, i do wonder if john wick 3 um, the finale took a little... There, there's a lot of kind of aesthetic similarities to it and how they use kind of a neon light, etc. Kind of a very aggressive, mm-hmm. harsh lighting. Uh, kind of glass and chrome. Um, yeah, it's it's a very modern, kind of like modernist sequence. Um, hard angles, hard light. Yeah, kind of just a, a strange abstract space. It's kind of almost reminiscent of like an experimental film. I was almost like watching it considering like the the doctor's weird lab in in Teshigahara's face of another which is a weird thing to even think of when you're watching a bond movie which is sort of because it's it's like a an empty skyscraper floor 
but somehow filled with window. I like I don't. You know, it's actually as I think about it, it's it's like an open plan office people haven't moved into, and it really highlights the kind of pointlessness of that space. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it's a really interesting setup, and it's it's interesting as well, also because he lets the assassination happen, which surprised me at the time, and maybe yeah. um, you know he he Ooh. he watches the guy shoot someone, and he doesn't stop him. And then he has a fight with him um, and loses him. He, it's actually, um, as you know, in this podcast, we keep we keep track of all the people James Bond murders because we're just, you know, we're engaged in these kind of interesting topics. But uh, Bond goes 50 plus minutes before he kills anyone in the film. The first person he theoretically kills in this movie is this guy. And he doesn't do it by on purpose. He just kind of, he, he fights him and he ends up hanging over the edge of, of the building and he, he can't keep a hold of him. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, 50 minutes in a Bond movie before he kills anyone. It's pretty unprecedented. Normally it's like 15 people dead before the opening credits roll. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's it's strange kind of a reboot on that. But yeah, it, it's uh, an interesting kind of a, a energy to the film in that it, it highlights again that he has a very specific mission, I guess, and that the assassination is of very little interest to him. It doesn't yeah. matter to him whether that happens or not. Maybe it's beneficial to Britain that it happens. I don't know. It's I don't think it's, the stakes are clarified. So he just watches him shoot another guy, and everyone on the other side just looks vaguely surprised, which I also... I, you know, they're kind of like, oh, did he just fall over? Oh, okay, great. Well, I uh, think, And then he has a fight. I think they are in on it, because they kind of just I immediately start moving the body, and the woman over there is the woman who we meet in our next scene, which is... It is Severine, yes. Macau Casino, yeah. Um, and yeah, she's so yeah, I was wondering villain. if they're in on it. So, yeah. yeah, and I do love how dark that sequence is. Like they're fighting in almost like shadow with the lights behind them. Yeah, and every it's every now and then the cool. the rifle goes off and like a muzzle flash lights up their faces. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, it is, it, it is definitely like Deacon's shot the hell out of this movie. Um, yeah, as he's that's kind of why you hire him. You don't hire Roger Deacons to not shoot the hell out of a movie. So it, yeah, it's it's a really visually striking sequence and then as we move into the next sequence in macau which you know is it kind of which actually they didn't actually go to they just built a set apparently but it's a really impressive kind of a space with and you, i guess going in digital this film does feel visually quite a bit darker than some of the previous bond films certainly you know your classical bond films um mm-hmm. They're they're able to kind of reside in the shadow a lot more and kind of work off of you know kind of uh, what would you say like auxiliary light sources like weak tangential light sources. So there yeah. there's a really kind of interesting look throughout this film which they lean into. Yeah, it's yeah, and as it transitions, it's interesting because it goes from like a very cold kind of blue and, and, and dark lighting, and then with the uh, casino, you know, it's obviously like colorful, like very uh, orange, warm. Um, just, but it's also beautiful, but it's just a interesting transition. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of just great, like different lighting scheme sequences. Yeah. When he rides in on the boat, oh. like the, uh, just, it's like a dragon head or, um, like a, something like that. It's a dragon head. It's like, like lantern. lit all by the lantern boats. It, it's yeah, like a it's casino beautiful. in the middle of the ocean. It looks like, um, yeah. No, I want to go there. Well, maybe not now, but I would have liked to. <laughs> <laughs> I would have too. Circa 2012 um, would have been fun. Yeah. But yeah, he meets. Uh, speaking of the casino, he meets Severin there, um, and then she uh, 
Bond deduces her past as a this is this is the kind of stuff that it feels weird to me in the film is that Bond deduces that she was involved in like a child sex ring, which is why she's tattooed on her wrist. And uh, the villain kind of saved her out of that lifestyle, but also is now kind of kept her on a close leash by his side. You're just. There's a really weird line in that where he says, I think it's in this sequence where he looks at her, he says, I know when a woman is afraid and pretending not to be. And firstly, you know, if you know that, that just makes you sound like you're just a weird guy. That's a terrible thing to say to anyone. And secondly, after Casino Royale, isn't that specifically what James Bond doesn't know about women being in distress? Because he missed that uh, entirely with a... with with his girl there that she was being you know a double agent etc but anyhow just well that's what he learned he he didn't know before i guess he learned she was yeah the unfortunate lesson i don't know if my yeah i I don't know if my takeaway from that is that bond is now more emotionally intelligent i think the takeaway is that he's a little bit more damaged and psychotic but i suppose potato potato um, he's, in any case, if I meet you know you meet a woman in a, in a casino for the first time, I wouldn't lead with that line. That's strange, but uh, you know he yeah. was right, so I suppose it all works out. Yeah, still a big gambit though. Um, but uh, I suppose we should we should let's I mean let's meet our villain right. The the film I think goes seventy minutes before we even see him. But uh, yeah, Severin takes him to this island, which has been uh, completely vacated because of the villain's power basically convinced all the residents that there was a chemical attack impending so everybody left so he has it all to himself and then bond is uh seated at a chair at the end of a long hallway and we see this elevator come down and out pops raul silva played by javier bardem who gives this amazing speech about how he his grandmother dealt with a rat infestation when he was a kid um i love this introduction uh i think javier bardem is like He strikes a right tone of kind of like menacing and campy. I love the way he tells the the story. Um, And uh, yeah, I I love the look of him. I think he's great. What are your thoughts on Silva, Christy? Yeah. Yeah, he's terrific. His and his speech or his little monologues like a few times in the movie is uh, some of the highlights. Yeah. Um, When he's telling different stories and, and, you know, the way he talks, obviously uh, his... At this point, you don't see, you can't see his, um, like, injury. But, um, you know, just different things about his character is just mm-hmm. very perfect. Uh, and I, I love Javier Bardem. I feel like he uh, very can't really do wrong by me. But especially in a villain role. And this is an interesting one, yeah. for sure. He has, he, he's, he has a very, like, soured background. It's such experience. Obviously, we're going to get into that more um, with, you know, M and everything and, there's just a, a lot of interesting things that he says and the way he delivers his lines. Mm-hmm. It's, it's perfect. Yeah. I mean, that whole hallway was like constructed to be at the length that was just so he could deliver the monologue down it. Like they, they actually based it out. Um, what do you, do you have any uh, thoughts on Silva and his introduction, Jack? Uh, yeah, this is, um, Silva's uh, an interesting foil, particularly after a previous film where we had, I think, uh, kind of uh, a similar-ish character visually. You know, we were, we were down to like just one guy, like uh, the, the villain was just kind of a guy. And in, in Quantum of Sauce, it's just like Matthew Amory playing just a bureaucrat. 
and he mm-hmm. wasn't a great villain because he literally is just a bureaucrat. He just he's he's power, but the, his power is that he can delegate things to other people. He can make stuff happen, but like he's just a guy. Uh, he feels phone calls. Uh, Silva kind of brings this back into the into the the realm of a single guy, but a, kind of like Bond himself, an actor, you know, or someone who can take action. Yeah. Um, who is exceptionally well trained, emotionally controlled within emotionally controlled within specific definitions. Bond and Silva both have kind of a, a an underlying psychosis. I guess you could you could argue they they must compartmentalize things. Um, both wounded too. I think, yeah, you know. absolutely. Yeah, carrying carrying injuries and specific reminders of their past. And um, but yeah, yeah Silva's kind of a. I, I guess it comes back to the idea that frankly, the best Bond films are invariably like somewhat similar to Bond. I mean, I think like Red Grant mm-hmm. from Russia with Love and uh, 006, Is it uh, Sean Bean in Goldeneye? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, very men of similar talents which is one of the funny things actually that i think one of the films that leads most heavily into this man with the golden gun is maybe my least favorite bond movie how do they screw up what seemed to be the most sensible line to tell on that but um yeah it, it's one of those things that yeah it, it's kind of like and i guess interesting that silva has leaned specifically into technology he's become more of an ephemeral agent a ghost who works through technology, whereas Bond is still very much hands-on. Silva has technically has advanced. He used to be a field agent, we'll learn, but he has moved on to the internet where he's become even more powerful in the sense, whereas Bond is still basically point-and-shoot guy. He has yeah. to be in the in the area to go. So yeah, there, there's definitely an interesting dynamic here. Uh, one thing that's strange to me about this is that Silva feels like queer-coded as a villain, which feels very old-school. I mean... It's kind of like one of the things from the early days of cinema is like, if you want a guy to be immediately identified as bad and make him, you know, a bit gay, uh, that's like uh, one of those regrettable but incredibly common tropes of, of classic cinema. It's kind of strange here that he, he, Silva feels queer-coded, but it's not really... It's, firstly, queer-coded doesn't really work anymore because I think most people are kind of like, you know, it doesn't work. There's not that association of gay equals bad to the general population but also um yeah i guess silva's only real relationship is to m as we'll learn through you know kind of an ongoing dislike with her so it's just sort of strange he's he's kind of a feat and and kind of effeminate and kind of unusual he's you know whereas bond i guess is very brooding masculine alpha male um yeah, I think there's an interesting energy between the two of them. I'm, I'm you know, I kind of difficultly categorizing that. I don't know when I say he's, he feels queer coded to me if that's like a bad thing or a negative, but it certainly feels like there's kind of an, an unusual tension between the two. So yeah. yeah, it certainly sets off. Uh, you know, let's watch these guys kill each other, which is you know kind of why we keep showing up with these things. I know, but uh, yeah, hey, Bond kind of plays along with the uh, the seduction interrogation scene as well. I like uh, their moment together. Um, but yeah, this is, seems to be like two men sort of vying for the love of M, um, and one of them's like the mm-hmm. the rejected older brother, and he was. We later learn that he was captured by the Chinese and tortured and interrogated for months on end. And then rather than give in, he, you know, he he did not give anything up and he actually tried to use a cyanide capsule to get out, but it destroyed his face. 
but um yeah he survived with a with a very very bitter chip on his shoulder so that's why he's out to uh kill ab and basically ruin her life um but yeah you're yeah. he's using technology he knows bonds uh a failure at mi6 you know he has all of his score results and he tests this by taking them out to have a William Tell routine featuring Severin and two glasses of 50-year-old whiskey. hey oh, nod to the uh, the uh, anniversary of the film. Um, I kind of like this uh, sequence as well, um, where Bond's unable to shoot the glass off of her head and Silva, without even just, like, without a moment's hesitation, just shoots Severin dead as a, just for her, I guess, for her betrayal. But, uh, you know, luckily this does give Bond the upper hand to... Um, take out all four guards that are around um it's an impressive feat of uh of athleticism and strength um what do you what do you, you have any other thoughts on the william tell sequence christy yeah um yeah it's it's a it's a great sequence and i do want to just point out to like what i love there are similarities between obviously silva and bond mm-hmm. but uh silva's definitely uses his intellect you know, intelligence a bit more like you know, on the savvy side and he's manipulative yeah. And I think this sequence, you know, he wants to, I think he's resentful of Bond and I think he wants to kind of embarrass him to an extent or at least show like, yeah. I, you know, he know, I know you, I see you, I, I, you know, I know everything. I know that you can't shoot that, you know, um, kind of playing him for a fool a little bit. Yeah. But I think, you know, he's someone that's, like I said, very manipulative. So I think like everything he does, as you know, as the movie goes on, is for a reason and it's very calculated. Mm-hmm. And it's something that makes him you know, really, obviously, interesting, but also mostly successful uh, villain because this is Bond after all. So, you know, he's not going to take over the world again. But yeah, that's my thoughts. Yeah, in the grand yeah. scheme of things, he's a he's like a very successful villain. He ultimately, <laughs> really? spoiler alert, accomplishes ta- his task at the end of the film. But um, yeah. yeah, he's he's kind of like pulling strings. You know what I mean? He, exactly. And Bond doesn't realize it at first. I mean, that's just, I think there's a difference. They're not saying that Bond isn't intelligent, but he is more of the hands-on. He is more, um, you know, the brooding kind of character. And It's it's the gentlemanly thing to do. If you're going to say you're going to kill someone, you just go and you say that and then you kill them. That's that's Bond, really. It's like there's a gentleman's Mm -hmm. agreement where Silva will lie to people to get them to do things. And that's... Mm -hmm. That's, you know, deeply impolite, above all else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really his biggest characteristic. He's just not polite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so he's, that's exactly right. There's, um, also, there's also within this sequence, um, I, I guess, kind of an interesting, in terms of the hardening of Bond, that after Severine is killed, that Bond says it's a waste of good whiskey, because, of course, <laughs> they spill some whiskey in this. And uh, you know, we were kind of unsure at that point of Bond's actual emotional state, because you know it's it's kind of like is he just saying that to to prevent you know to kind of guard himself for having failed? Um, you know it, it's kind I of think he just doesn't want to give anything to sure to exactly. I think I mean, so, I think and that's it's, what it comes down to. It's kind of like after Casino Royale and he failed to protect a woman that it's kind of he's he's the same thing has happened again, um, but he's kind of dressing it up a little more this time. I think he's a little more on the defensive. Which, yeah, is I think a, an interesting trait. So, yeah, it's it's a solid scene, and as I say, this is uh, I think like an hour and twenty minutes into the movie. This is the first the four henchmen that Bond kills, like the first four people he actually kills on purpose in this film. 
So that's uh, incredible restraint on the part of Mr. Bond. Yeah. Well, luckily Bond activated the radio that Q gave him. So some MI6 helicopters come and pick them up. Um, and I really like, uh, I think Skyfall is a great film, but I do think from this point on, there are some flaws, I guess, on a storytelling level, um, mainly because, like we mentioned, that Silva's pulling strings and he's obviously doing that. I think it's a little bit too neat how some things just kind of fall into place. Um, and this is coming like at the tail end of this. There was this trend in Hollywood where it seemed like the the villain would sort of get himself caught on purpose just so he could break out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Joker did it in The Dark Knight. Uh, Loki does it in The Avengers. And a little bit of a trope. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a trope. Luckily, I think they've they've pretty much stopped it. But uh, yeah, so um, Silva's interrogated by Q or excuse me, not Q by M. Um, but she's on her way to her hearing. Um, and meanwhile, Q is like hooking up Silva's laptop to the MI6 computers so that he can uh, breach it and see what's in- going on inside of it. Um, but this is all like sort of going to Silva's plan, like to a T, because he's also like in a this like fog glass jail cell that's apparently electronic key encoded so that if the computers go haywire, he'll be freed. Um, and he does. Yeah, get they freed. never they never they never really satisfactorily explain why Q, who is apparently a genius, hooks up this laptop or allows a viral infection through a laptop that apparently is hooked up to the entire MI6 mainframe, which, like, I'm not a genius on this, but I know if you're working against a computer hacker, you don't just, like, put it up on a system that's hooked into everything else immediately. That's a terrible idea. And, you know, it's kind of like a hubris of Q, maybe, but Q's not really a developed enough character at this point to have hubris. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sort of a strange thing. It, it does feel like a narrative, kind of like a shortcut. They just, they need to get somewhere. And yeah, they, everything goes haywire and the, his Hannibal Lecter cube pops open and Silva's ready to roam and run around mm-hmm. in subway tunnels. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, so- Q's also new. So maybe, you know, I mean, he needs to make some mistakes. You know, um, this is a younger version of Q than we're used to, too, as well. So, it, you know, his first introduction. Um, so maybe, you know, he needs to, you know, he doesn't have it all figured out. Yeah, you know, maybe. It's true. I, I've not watched Spectre and so on. So maybe this may be part of a development of, of the character. So I'm, I mean, I'm willing to let that in. This is, yeah, this is just a film about people who are like messing up and dealing with flaws. Bond can't stop Patrice. Money Penny shoots him off a train. M is basically blamed for the list getting out. Q hooks up the yeah. virus. Uh, like everything is going wrong because of MI6, and they're all scrambling to fix it. This is a this is a film about failure and about kind of looking at your past. And I think it's a it's a very like after fifty years, it's like one of the most self reflexive Bond films that there is. But uh, um, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting wrinkle to it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And the scene, you know, where I, I don't know if we were skipping past it or not, but where Silva does talk about how he, um, you know, what happened to him and how he bit down on the uh, cyanide and he like shows oh, what, yeah. what he looks like. That's that's such a good scene, too. I that like whole that conversation. Too. Yeah. Like he literally like takes out a piece of a like a removable part of his upper jaw that he has and his face just sinks into this. Sinks. Yeah. Ghoulish state. Yeah. It's creepy. Um, are you a fan of that, Jack? Yeah, I mean, I think it always it, it's 
again, it's kind of a Bond classic, really. He's he's kind of he looks normal, effectively, a mm-hmm. little flashy with his blonde hair, etc. But he has a physical deformity. There's some kind of a something he obviously wakes up to every day that reminds him why he does what he does, and it's yeah. revealed to us. It's not immediately apparent, so he can he can kind of hide it, but it's always there. Which you know is that's. That's yeah. always, you know, solid, solid villain building, really, isn't it? And, of course, Bond has his own scars in the past, so kind of allies the two, although Bond will always be handsome, and they're never going to give him a massive facial scar. That's true, that. yeah. <laughs> but it would still. be great if they did, though. But, oh. um, oh, do, you think that gives, do you think that gives, like, Silva, like, do you feel, like, bad a little bit? more like empathy towards him given like that sequence well yeah i mean i think it, it, it certainly builds into the idea I, we've talked about like throughout the franchise bond is referred to and particularly in the daniel craig era the bond is referred to as a blunt instrument he's he's a mm-hmm. he's a tool at the disposal of other people and mm-hmm. that's a very difficult thing to reconcile it's, i mean the opening sequence is him watching another agent die and he knows he could probably help that other agent but that's not the goal that's not what he's there for um, and it's understanding that that could be him next, uh, and it is. He gets shot himself and falls, and they, they presumably, uh, maybe they tried to retrieve his body, but they didn't succeed. He ended up somewhere else himself. So the understanding that, that you know, for these guys, their lives are expendable for all of them, yeah. really. And yeah, but Silva obviously bears the grudge, and maybe the grudge is legitimate, frankly. Um, I mean, yeah. it's not exactly like M and MI6 are particularly sympathetic characters themselves. So yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it, it does bring up that tension, but of course we, we then always have to say that, well, Silva's, Silva's not very sympathetic either. So, you know, weigh it up a little bit, I suppose. Yeah. But it does show his commitment, and it does show, you know, people in mi6 what they're willing to do i mean he's learning yes he's willing to die without you know before and the dangers of it as well i mean the danger i mean you you train people to be very dangerous and uh if they decide they're not working for you anymore they're still very dangerous and that's yeah yeah that that double-sided sword double-edged sword that that is that is all of this kind of spy craft etc um and which which is again again I think why it's so interesting when you have a, a kind of a the, the accomplice or the villain being a, a flip side of a coin to Bond. It's kind of like Bond is the hero, but we we also begin to ask at certain points what Bond's relationship with things are, uh, which I guess is always my concern with with the Bond franchises. They can't really get into the nitty gritty of this because they had you know it's not like there's ever going to be a Bond movie that's like colonialism was bad. Because you can't really, you know, they're not going to broach that conversation. We make way too much stuff really uncomfortable. But you know, yeah. it, it is in the back. It is in the background. It's kind of like James Bond is a tool for the British Crown to achieve its goals, and its goals may involve watching a guy in China getting murdered and not caring, you know, etc., etc. You know, so. Yeah, and it, it kind of brings in that murkiness, that that moral quandary of that none of these people are operating at best. MI six is operating in our interests only because of where we happen to live. Uh, so you know, it, it's something to bear in mind. I think it, it's it's kind of utilized well enough within the film without them really getting into the nitty gritty, which would require a Costa Gavras film, which would be very different <laughs> <laughs> and much more depressing. <laughs> But it does show kind of the dark side of like MI6 in a sure. way, or like they kind yeah. of almost get their you know comeuppance in a sense. Like 
you yeah. know, you're asking these people to do that, and occasionally someone, you know, like Silva, something like that could happen. And as we talked about this movie, everybody fails. Yeah. Um, everything is kind yeah. of pulled apart, and so in a way, it is kind of reflecting on, you know, what could happen in the worst case scenario. Yeah, and I mean, even that's what kind of tying it back into this this point of the film. M is at a hearing just to see if. MI6 is even something worth keeping around um, just because of all the, the damage that's been caused. So it's it's kind of like the film looking at it as if this is this is an organization that is still tenable in today's world. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, this, these, this is are we all having fun here? These are some great points we're making. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm having a good time. Um, but uh, yeah, right on back to uh, back to the, the subway tubes. Um, Bonds chasing Silva um, through the underground station. Um, I got a little excited watching this part because this is the first time I've seen Skyfall since visiting London last year, where the tubes are very much a regular part of your daily commute around town. So um, I uh, I kind of enjoyed identifying different uh, state so you know platforms that they were on. Um, but uh, we do get a little bit of. Silva being like the perfect foreseer of his um, his actions because he detonates part of the subway, which sends a train coming in down and nearly squashes Bond. Uh, I know that's a scene that gets a lot of that. This movie gets a lot of flack for. Um, I don't really have a problem with it too much. It's just, you know, it's just it's it is a little neat, but uh, it's a bit diehard with a vengeance. I guess yeah. is my main complaint about it. It's kind of like I've seen this already, but yeah, yeah I wouldn't wouldn't complain too much about it. Yeah. But uh, yes, yeah. Silva makes his way to the uh, the hearing. And um, this is where, like, I think like everybody everybody at MI6 has sort of been like they're kind of being chastised uh, at the board and then. I think they all kind of come together in this great moment where uh, Silva comes in, he starts shooting guards, and he's about to shoot M, but Bond comes, he saves the day, he shoots, starts shooting Silva's men. Uh, Ray Fiennes takes a bullet to protect M. Uh, Eve Moneypenny gets a gun, she starts shooting people. Uh, Bond winks at Mallory, which is fucking great. I love that moment. Um, yeah, this is a. I think this yeah, is just a great. That's little the resolution sequence. of the tension because Mallory, of course, had been <laughs> originally bonded, kind of disregarded him as a pencil pusher. He's a bureaucrat, but it's right. hinted that he he is actually was a field agent. He's not a bureaucrat, um, and of course, this is the scene that confirms he is also a man of action who just happens to have chosen a leadership role, which is a very different thing to just kind of moving into that through yeah. British political mechanisms. So yeah, I mean, this is very much, yeah, the unifying moment, the kind of, the, the turn of everything reforming against Silva. The only the only issue I again would have with this is that if Silva has predicted every single part of this thing, you might know where M was already sitting if you really wanted to kill her. It feels unusual everything else having gone this well, that he would show up in the room with a gun, get the jump on everyone, and that M would still be okay at the end of it, but... You know, so I guess maybe you wanted to kidnap her rather than just shoot her immediately or he paused a little bit to relish the moment and that gave Bond enough time to intervene. And of course, there's Bill Tanner as well, uh, M's kind of like right-hand man, uh, played by Rory Kinnear, who's been in multiple films. I think he takes a bullet in this as well, in this scene. It's kind of like one of his moments to be like a field agent. He doesn't get a lot to do in the previous films. He normally is just for exposition purposes. So yeah, there, it's you know it's it's a, a scene that kind of like I guess is the turning point dramatically of the film. It it moves us to where we 
to her second part where everyone knows about Silva and is now moving against him. He's he's moved to the back foot again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, Bond saves them. He gets he basically kidnaps her from Tanner. Um, he's just kind of left standing there in the street, which is funny. Um, and Bond decides to take her to safety, but also asks Q to uh, track them in a way where Silva can follow them, but also buy them some time. Uh, and to do that, they have to switch vehicles from a company car to a car that's in storage. And um, this is probably my single favorite moment of, in the film is where Bond gets the original Aston Martin. And just the, the music cue that hits when the lights pop up um, is just, uh, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's glorious. I love it. I love it so much. Um, you're you're a fan, I assume, right, Christy? The Aston. Yeah. It was pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Seeing that in a theater in like a sold out opening night was uh, just exhilarating to watch. Um, I you know call it fan service, call it what you will. I'm I'm here for it. Uh, I, I hope yeah, I'm I, on board. I hope you are too, Jack. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I, it makes sense. It's kind of one of those things that when it happens, you're like. Like, of course, why would you miss this trick? You wouldn't, you know? And yeah, so they blow the car up later, which is always, I'm looking at that car going like, please don't hurt the car. That, I I mean, we talk about how, like, Silva and Bond are just kind of having this, like, pissing contest throughout the film. Um, Like, just Silva randomly ordering his helicopter to shoot the car knowing that nobody's in it but just to watch it blow up is true (laughs) he just is like oh this will get his goat he relishes with that yeah breaking toys it's true i i do i do love that but um yeah bond and uh m flee to scotland and we go to the title of the film which is skyfall and we learn that is uh james bond's ancestral home which is uh currently being overseen by kincaid played by albert finney um, now, Jack, I'm not sure if you were aware, but uh, this role was originally supposed to be played by Sean Connery. Um, I'd read pers- that, yeah. Personally, well, actually, the original plan was to have this not be Bond's home, but it was going to be a retirement home for former Double O agents, and every past Bond was supposed to be in there. They were gonna oh, have that would have been. They didn't do that. No, no, that would have been a mistake. That would have been a mistake. That would have been horrible. Yes, I'm. <laughs> I'm willing to bet way too much fan service. I'm willing to bet if that was the case. Yeah, I'm willing to bet you know Connery and Dalton said no, and they're like, okay, let's just not do this. Um, anyway, but, James Bond's can't retire to a retirement home. That would be awful. It's just weird. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. And plus, we wouldn't have got Albert Finney, and he's awesome. Oh yeah, he's yes. great. I I love him in that. He's 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 a lot of fun. He's a great ally. Um, but yeah, they're uh, so they're sort of biding their time. M just sort of reflects on her mistakes. Uh, Bond practices some shooting. Uh, Kincaid is just wonderful. They they booby trap the house for when Silva finally arrives, and we have this great like Home Alone esque slash Straw Dog standoff uh, where Bond and it's, Kincaid it's are. A, yeah, it's a, it's a strange energy because Bond is always storming bases and mansions he rarely defends one it's kind yeah, of an yeah. inversion of things you know he's always like jumping off into the place and blowing it up so it's kind of interesting to have someone else moving in which again channels the energy that silva really is kind of like he he's really the counterpart to bond it's his job to storm the building yeah that's yeah he flips everything on its head you know in this movie yeah he disturbs everything so even just like him having to defend a place versus storming it 
is, you know, the opposite of what we're used to, which is part of the reason why this movie, I think, is, is so great. Yeah, this is my favorite of the um, the Daniel Craig climaxes uh, that we've seen so far. Um, Casino Royale's is great, but it's kind of all it's almost like an afterthought after all the the um Lashif and poker stuff is taken care of there's just kind of this last minute oh here we go again and bond has to go into this sinking building in venice and then quantum is of course it's kind of too rushed and butchered in editing but like this is um yeah this is not there's not really any save the world destroy the red button that sends out the nuke thing this is just bond in a stone house killing people that dare come near it and um it's a lot of there's a lot of gruesome stuff like they put nail bombs in the light fixtures there's like shotgun planks with nails um a lot of a lot of a lot of great things there and there's a lot of great moments like like that bond just kind of casually shows off like i love him kick flipping the machine gun into his hands uh (laughs) i love later on when he's running out in the field and he like does this jump in the air and like breaks a guy's neck with his ankles and then just keeps running that's just that's great. I will say um, I'll say something I appreciate about this running a death count is that I was like they had an establishing shot when the bad guys show up and I counted the number oh yeah. of bad guys and then I could just check them off. It was mathematically <laughs> appropriate. Just like eight guys enter, zero leave. <laughs> you know right. the way no, it should it's be. A, yeah, it, it's like Bond really arrives here. You know, mm-hmm. um, like he he still got it. Yeah. There's uh, there's no doubt about that, and it's it's a fun sequence, even if it is you know there's a a lot of killing and, and stuff like that. It's it's yeah, it's a good sequence. It's great, yeah. It all comes to a head at the uh, the church on the other side of the lake. Uh, we find that M has been shot, and Silva comes in and he's ready to kill her. But then he decides that oh, the appropriate way to end is that they both should die together, and he forces her to push a gun at at both of their heads. But luckily, Bond saves the day. He throws a knife into his back. And kills him, and uh, but moments later, that, um, we oh sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was, I was just gonna say yeah, I think that that plays in the the idea that his maybe his plan that they both had to die together, I guess maybe explains his hesitation when he storms the briefing that he had mm-hmm. he had other plans, much more deranged plans than just killing her. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I he definitely also, has like a love for her, like yes. I mean, even if it's twisted and and you know wrapped up in hatred as well, perhaps and resentment that I think kind of puts him like puts that level. It makes it harder for him to just go up and kill her. Yeah. yeah. I, I would also say, um, just to, to backtrack just slightly, the, the skyfall ablaze in the night sky is probably for me, the image I will take away from the Daniel Craig era. It nice. is just a really striking. And again, this, this call falls down to kind of just uh, the low light cinematography this really stark image of this massive burning building. It, really just stunning looking. And, and yeah, I mean, for me, probably this is the one I'll be, you know, I think Daniel Craig Bond, big fire in Scotland. Absolutely all I want, all I need. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of just a lot of great lighting. Like I love even when Bond's fighting the guy under the frozen lake, like that's even somehow beautifully lit just I guess from uh, mm. cast from the fire on the surface, but uh, yeah, that's it's it's just a very indelible finale. Um, I I I so strong and so so gorgeously made on all levels. I love it. Um, and yeah, Bond and the remote setting and the fact that it has like you know obviously like a personal 
um, something personal to bond someone who grew up yeah it's a great way like a place to end the movie on for sure yeah it's just sort of it's sort of his whole his whole career his whole life is just sort of coming full circle to this and improving himself to the probably the only one person who ever loved him even if she never admitted it um but uh yeah i mean it's the orphan finding his family effectively i mean or re-establishing a family unit then him dies so, oops. Yeah. But <laughs> Dysfunctional family. But, yeah. but hey, you know, you, slightly. you can make a lot out of a, a surrogate family. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be nuclear, so to speak. Um, but yeah. yeah. But yes, she does succumb. Unfortunately, we do lose. But M. she toughs it out. I, I do think it is interesting that you know, because M is obviously not a field agent, that she either maybe at first doesn't realize she's been shot, and then when she does realize she's been shot, she kind of realizes there's no sense in troubling anyone about it, that it's, you know, they're still in the middle of a situation. So she still has that kind of application of, I guess, a toughness that she kind of... She's a tough dame. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) just that realization that, like, frankly, it doesn't matter that I've been shot because we've still got more stuff to do. Um, and mm-hmm. as we pointed out earlier, this does actually mean Silva kind of achieves his plan, except they don't die together. He dies ignominiously with a knife at his back, and M yeah. dies kind of with a great degree more of dignity, etc. He doesn't get the satisfaction of seeing M die, and that's what's important. Right. That is important. Yeah. He doesn't know that she dies, yeah. yeah. And I think she probably does keep it to herself, maybe to even not distract Bond, or just to, you know... Well, yeah, it kind of catches you off guard because a this film, the series never kills a main character, um, right. uh, and so when we see like a flurry of gunfire hit in her direction, but Bond kills the assassin and he comes in. And he has to, and she has like a remark like, "Where have you been?" And so you think, "Oh, she's fine," but then later we see, "Oh no, she's not fine. She's actually bleeding heavily." And so yeah, she she does not make it. But um, yeah, rest in peace, M as played by Dame yeah. Judi Dench. Had a great run. Um, but yeah, after uh, Silva's been taken care of, we get, you know, our, our little our little conclusion is back at uh, the MI6. Um, Eve is now uh, stationed to a desk as Money Penny. Q is uh, being Q in Q Lab. And Mallory has been stationed as the new M. And the very last scene in the film is uh, him giving Bond a case file. And... Uh, Basically, to set up many more adventures, and that uh, that brings us to an end of Skyfall. Um, yeah, and I gotta ask, and I apologize because sure. I I can't remember, but is it at the end of this where he gets what M leaves to him, which is the uh, the the dog statue that he oh, hates, like the little pug, yeah, his little, the little bulldog, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jack pug. <laughs> yeah, I, it's just something that should be added because it's a, I don't know, it's. Oh, well, that's also funny. It is. I think it's a good representation of the of the franchise. It's kind of like a very garish, kind of ugly little curio, but also kind of lovable. Kind of like, you know, you, you can get behind it. And I think that's a Bond franchise on the whole as well. That you know, as well like me watching it as like the British Secret Service. You know, uh, did no favors in Northern Ireland when I was growing up. But uh, you know, Bond is a separate, its own separate thing. We can't get too tied up and we kind of so like the, the yeah I, I really like the ugly pug thing it's sort of like a kind of a beat up dumb thing but exactly the kind of charm that you know kind of like differentiates it and, and brings it out into its own 
world. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's fitting. And also, I guess because M is so utterly pragmatic throughout, and she has this one just like shitty gift shop thing on her desk. Is <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why not? And now it's on Bond's. De- I guess he he loses his apartment. They mentioned that earlier on this film because he died right. and he stayed yeah. he stayed dead too long, so he lost his apartment. So I guess in his new apartment, or if he has a desk, I don't know. Does James James Bond did have a desk in an earlier film? Because uh, he pulled he out did. all like earlier bits from other earlier Bond films in it. I don't yeah. remember which one that was though. Majesty's but, uh, Secret Service. That's but, the one, uh, yeah, to make sure yeah. we we could adjust to Connery. So I guess Bond has a desk somewhere, and it has that that bulldog on there now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's uh, it's a rare thing to see Bond's desk in his apartment, but uh, they do pop up from time to time. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that was Skyfall. I mean. Uh, Christy, you're our guest. Do you have any uh, thought, closing thoughts on the film itself? Yeah, I just, well, that was fun, first of all. So thank you again. Sure, yeah. um, it's fun to kind of relive that movie because I do, I do love it. And I think it's, it opens up a, a new chapter, you know, with, you know, M dying. Like you said, that's huge. It's not something that they do. And it was unexpected. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it really makes sense within the film. And I think that, the whole point with us talking about M6, uh, like the whole thing about it being kind of breaking down um, to an extent, uh, Mm -hmm. MI6, sorry. Um, It makes sense that it kind of needs to be revamped, like restarted in a sense. And that obviously comes with like great fines and, um, you know, her becoming, Eve becoming money penny, just transitioning into a new story. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a, I love that movie. There's very few things that I can really pick apart. And the ones that we can, we did. Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, Jack, do you want to run some uh, numbers for us? No, you uh, absolutely you tally. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Let's see how many people Bond just horrifically murdered. Um, in this film, he horrifically murders 24 people. One of them by accident, as I've mentioned before. He, he drops them. So 24, this is pretty solid. That's um, honestly almost as many people as he's killed in the previous two films combined. So mm-hmm. Bond is obviously getting up, which is particularly impressive considering it took him nearly half the film before he even started. Um, so very, very good odds there. And that brings, uh, for anyone keeping count, uh, that brings James Bond since Dr. No and including Never Say Never Again as the unofficial uh, non-Eon outing, uh, James Bond has murdered 367 people. That's more than one for every day of the year. Beautiful nice. thing. Well done. So, we'll, and that will only go up. None of those people are coming back. <laughs> so, um, we, we also we also track Bond's sexual trysts, because of course we do, because why not? Um, this one I had, I actually, I had some confusion on this one, because there's a scene between him and Eve, and I was like, it was a little unclear, and I just put a little question mark on my notes, and I was like, "Oh, I'll relook at the scene, and we'll see what the you know the energy of the scene is, maybe." Oh, when she it, shaves him? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's and yeah. it just it's yeah, like it's a, a hard scene. cut. Yeah, and it's a hard cut, and I'm kind of like, eh, maybe I don't know. Like in most of, in a Roger Moore movie, that definitely meant something happened. And then the last scene shows up, and she's like, "Oh yeah, my name is Money Penny." I'm like, "Well, cross that off the list. They definitely didn't know nothing happened." So uh, <laughs> yeah. nothing having happened there. Uh, James Bond sleeps with two women in this film, which brings uh, Craig's total doubles to four. Craig being the, by far and away the most chaste uh, of the Bonds. Um, brings James Bond has so far had 55 uh, lovers throughout the series, um, which really leaves him far behind Jerry Seinfeld and many other uh, popular sitcom <laughs> actors. 
Uh, and the, the age differences wow. here aren't actually that bad. So Severin, uh, is, uh, there's only 11 years between Daniel Craig and uh, the actress's name is escaping me, and Berenice Marlowe. There's only 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 eight mm-hmm. years between them. That's nothing. So, you know, that's, that's uh, sorry, 11 years between them, which is frankly, okay, on Reddit, that would be a problem. People would be losing their shit over an 11-year age difference. But considering the record holder is uh, still Roger Moore with 30 years between him and Carol Bouquet in For Your Eyes Only, nothing. I do want to note, though, that there is a 19-year age difference between uh, Daniel Craig and uh, Tonya Sotoripulo. I, I'm pronouncing that terribly. Uh, who is the unnamed woman in the early beach scene. Uh, she's mm. only 25 uh, in that sequence. So 19 years, is that's impressive for a late era Bond. I don't think we're ever going to see that again, but it was kind of like a cutaway in almost like in silhouette. So frankly, they like, for all I know, they just pulled her like out of like a casting role thing. She really, it's not really, she's really almost just there for a second. Um, yeah. But anyhow, in my over-examination of these things, because uh, at this point, frankly, after the Raw, when I really conceived of this originally, it was really with the Roger Warrior. I feel the age difference thing kind of doesn't make a difference anymore. But we're just going to keep going anyway. Maybe we'll really screw it up later on, do something really weird. So, yeah. yeah um, so so that brings us through that, which means, I guess, Jake, you got the box office numbers on this one, which I believe are crazy. Yeah, I do. This is uh, I mentioned at top. This is the billion dollar Bond movie um, on a budget of two hundred million. It made three hundred and four million in the U.S. alone, which is roughly equivalent to four thirty nine million today. And it went on to make one point one billion dollars worldwide uh, at the box office in two thousand twelve. Uh, now in today's numbers, that's one point six billion. Uh, here's what's crazy. Um, currently, this is the twenty eighth highest grossing film of all time. Uh, if you go worldwide and uh, adjusted for inflation. Um, but at one point, and this is probably right before the MCU took off, this was the seventh highest grossing film ever made, uh, which was wild to think that that the yeah. Bond was which, which like... Which is not bad for a two and a half hour kind of dark <laughs> movie yeah. about like awkward mother-son relationships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you put it that way, yeah. It's this people should have like <laughs> flown away in droves from this, but uh, no, I think uh, I think the just the the general disappointment with um, Quantum of Solace and just a lot of return to classical elements in this film. I think this is this was just a Bond film ready to be you know welcomed in open arms, and I think uh, yeah, just at the end of the day, I think um, I think Skyfall is just a, like it just captures that great classic feeling of bond. And, um, I, uh, even some of the flaws in the latter half aside, I still, I still have a great time watching it. At the very least, it makes a great demo disc. Uh, if you want to check out your new, like 4k (laughs) plasma screen TV, this is, this is a great looking film to try. It's the bond film we needed. Um, exactly exactly it was the it was the film we needed at you know at at a very very dark time in american history was was this the bond film for the obama era this was yeah this is i mean the next one's gonna be the the bond movie for the trump era because i don't even want to (laughs) think what that would be oh man yeah well uh we shall see do you have any uh probably probably actually the the bond movie for the trump era is going to involve uh felix leiter apologizing a lot (laughs) That's well, gonna be that movie. Well, Felix was not in this film. He was in the last two, but he will be. Spoiler alert: He will be back in No Time to Die. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, what, it's in uh, the trailer. Too. But uh, so it's not too yeah, spoiler. Exactly. I mean, that's true. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, there's, there might be some people listening to this, hoping we don't talk about No Time to Die. I'm sure there is somebody. We're going to get one more angry email <laughs> next to our David Niven fan in the inbox. But um, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on Skyfall, Jack? Uh, not really. Um, I, I will say, I guess it's a... Excuse me. I think I think it's a film that I'm going to return to. Uh, watching it first, it's it's nice. it's a very big film, and it's it's yeah, it's kind of like when I was watching it, I was a little bit thrown by kind of its rhythm. I wasn't fully engrossed with it. I was certainly like, you know, well, this is better than Quantum of Solace, mm-hmm. but uh, not you know up with Casino Royale, for example. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you know, talking it out and talking a little more about it, yeah, I'll I'll come back to this one. There's, there's definitely there's a lot of a lot of solid stuff in here. So, um, yeah, nice. yeah, definitely, definitely good time. Nice. 25 of these podcast episodes and I, I'm, I'm making a Bond fan out of you yet. Um, yes. That's excellent. right. I've hated all of the previous 24 of these. <laughs> You're starting to come around, which is what I like to hear. Um, but, uh, yeah, Christy, thank you so much for being a guest. You've been amazing. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to, uh, you, you want to, plug your social media in case anybody wants to follow you after listening to this. Sure. Yeah. And thanks again for having me. It was fun. Um, I love this movie. So it was the perfect one to have, have me on for, but, um, you know, you can of course check out right, our yeah. website, filmandcree.com, which obviously Jake is a writer and editor on, and, um, my social media, my Twitter is at Strauss, S T R U S E underscore Christy K R I S T Y. And Instagram is at Christy on film. And, uh, yeah, thanks again. It was fun. Right on. Thank you so much, Chrissy. Uh, Jack, do you have uh, anything you'd like to plug? Um, you can find me at Twitter at real Jack Eason. That's uh, real J A C K E A S O N. Uh, I spend far too much time on Twitter, uh, hurl abuse or questions at me, whatever. That's, I've got nothing else to do. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much, Jack. Um, I am at Jake Tropila on all social media, J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Hit me up there. Let me know what you think of Skyfall. Um, But yeah, that does it for another episode of uh, For Your Ears Only. Uh, Tune in next time. We will return with Spectre. Spectre.